my guest today is PJ Walsh, one of my best friends in the whole world, uh, someone who's helped me out tremendously in the comedy realm uh, more than anybody else, taking me on the road, introducing me to different clubs and promoters and getting me in with all of them, and just an all-around great guy. He was in my wedding line, just a great guy. It was fun catching up with him, and he opened up about uh, his tour in the military, going overseas, fighting in the wars several times, and then going back as a USO performer. I didn't even know most of it, so it was really interesting hearing that, and uh, hope you enjoy my conversation with PJ Walsh. That's a crazy thing about the internet, is you can you can say something so ridiculous and completely not true, right. and it just takes on a truth because <laughs> right. someone wants to believe it. And there's a whole bunch of people who are like, yeah. Like the first time that that kind of stuff ever dawned on me, I was a, like a senior in high school and one of my friend's mothers worked for like a private airline and, and she had came, she came back and she was like, uh, well, my friend told me this, said his mom told me this and said like, uh, oh, my friend is a nurse and at night they brought in Richard Gere to remove a gerbil from oh, his butt. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, what? What? You know, Zach Mayo, Officer and Gentleman? It's like my, it's like my favorite movie of all time. You know, like gerbil in his butt. What? But it was like, you know, my friend, the mom, friend of friend, you know, close to home. I'm like, oh, I guess that's true. And I'm also like, that's crazy. Like, whatever. Right. You know, I joined the Navy. It's like years go by, whatever. Some guy from like Seattle starts like talking. He's like, yeah, my uh, my friend's friend was in the hospital and this is that. Richard Gere came in and he had a gerbil in his butt. And I'm like, oh my God, that's like two states, this guy. This is just going state to state shoving burnt gerbils in his butt, right? You know, I'm like, dude, I heard about that in New York too. He did it in New York. Like at this point, I'm not even thinking like this right. is made up. I'm just like, this guy's just going from state to state shoving gerbils up his can. So <laughs> So, so after like years and years and years, finally I heard this story enough times. I'm thinking, I, I don't really think this happened. Right. And then the other thing got me is like all these years, he's never addressed it. No. No, all those talk shows, all those things, like at no talk to anyone lean over and go, Richard, come on. You got to get ahead of this. <laughs> you know, <already>. you heard. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, this has to come up with some dinner party, you know, <laughs> He's had to him. <laughs> Me and his friends. Oh, I don't. I don't know what the right time to bring this up will be. I don't know. It's only been twenty six years. <laughs> How does something like that start? Something so I don't know. outrageous. But twenty six years, and I I heard it in at least seven states. So it's got to be about one hundred and fifty thousand gerbils by this point. <laughs> Because I remember hearing that. I think it was like a comedy song. And I wish I could remember. I can't think of who it was at the time. But it was years ago, probably high school. And I was like, what is that? Like, I just thought it was a funny line. And then, you know how when you hear something, and then all of a sudden you just hear it everywhere? Yeah. It was like that. Then yeah. I heard it everywhere. And then people were telling me the story. And so I've heard it a million times too. And they're all like different stories, but they all wind up with Richard Gere with a gerbil in his ass. Oh, yeah, yeah. The the, the through line of the story is always the gerbil up his hand. Like, no matter <laughs> Like, it never, it never, you can play a telephone game, but it always comes back, you know, somewhere, somewhere in the line, a gerbil still up his can. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's the plot. You can decorate it up. It's like, um, Point Break and Fast and the Furious. Fast and Furious is just Point Break with cars. The plot's the same. Right. Never really deviates. You can change, you can change a whole bunch of characters and the name. It's still gerbil and Zach Mayo's butt. <laughs> That's the first time I realized, like, oh, man, people just make things up. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes it's just accidents. This happened to me. So when I was when I first moved to L.A., like, I had a whole bunch of odd jobs. And one of the jobs I had was I would work undercover security at, like, Hollywood parties and stuff. So plainclothes security. So I, I was doing this. It was this thing at Universal, some big, huge party, right? Okay. And, like, it was for, like, the mummy or some crazy thing. I don't know. But out on the dance floor, I see Ving Rhames. You know, like Ving Rhames from like uh, Pulp Fiction, and all that, like, and he's like one of the greatest actors of like of all. Like, I really like respect him. He's a phenomenal actor, yeah. especially at the time. Like, I was younger, I was just getting to Hollywood and this that. Right. But he was dressed as a, a a cowboy. He had a hat on, and he had like tight pants and this, and he was dancing with a, He was he was dancing with a dude, right? And I was like, oh, okay. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Right. Marcellus Wallace and all that, like whatever. Right. Okay. Yeah, but who, how? Whatever. Rock Hudson. People. Yeah. I don't know. You know. Everybody. Right. Whatever. Okay. So right. caught you off guard. But, is all. Yeah, but I, I was very 
like conscious of like not mistaking a black actor for another black actor, right? You know what I mean? Like right. I didn't want to be like that white guy. So I called one of my girlfriends and I had her come come to the party just to because I was just like, well, actually, I was just like, hey, this thing's happening or whatever. So she, she she shows up right, and she was like kind of prominent in in like like hung out with like Denzel and all like so she she shows up and uh and I I just have her kind of placed so she can look over my shoulder so she see the dance floor and she's just like, is that Ving Rhames? And I'm like, right, Ving Rhames is a gay black cow. Boy, like I had no idea, right? So it wasn't just me. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. So, dude, party, the the party, the, the whole thing kind of ends. It's wrapping up. She leaves. Ving Rames and the boyfriend are walking my direction, and I got, I just want to get a picture with Ving, man. And, and oh, like, yeah. so I tell my buddy, this guy, Big Bruce, big huge dude, Big Bruce. I'm a like, Big Bruce. You got to hold. This is when you had to hold the camera, right? Oh yeah. I said like, you got to get a picture of me of Ving Rames. So I walk up and I go, excuse me, um, I just want to say I'm a big fan uh, of what you do. Do you mind if I get a picture? I just really respect you and everything and and everything that you 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 bring to the world. I think I think it's beautiful. He's like, yeah, man, not a problem, whatever. So I hand Big Bruce the camera, right, and then I. Go and I put my arm around him, and soon as I touch him, it dawns on me: this isn't Ving Rhames at all. This is just some random gay black cowboy. And I just wrapped my arm around him and said, "I'm a huge fan of what you do. What you bring to the world is beautiful." What did he? What do you think he thought you were talking about? Dude, I don't know. I have no idea. I got no clue. Gay porn? I have no idea. Who cares? Anyway, he was very he, he was very happy with the com- with the compliment. So we, we take the picture, right? We take the picture, right? right? Then he walks off with the boyfriend. Big Bruce hands me the camera, and he goes, "That wasn't Ving Rhames, was it?" I go, "Not even close." <laughs> I go, not my best moment. I go, it seemed a little bit racist and homophobic. Like, not even, not even close. Like, that was awful. I'm a, I'm a terrible, terrible human you being. You hit both of them right there. Oh, Dude, God. nailed it. And here's the thing is I was trying to prevent all of that. And I, I just was a fan. Oh. That's all. But here's where it gets worse. Here's the friend that I had come. Yeah. All right. Years go by. I'm living in New York now. Hurricane Sandy is happening, and I know she's in New York City. I'm upstate in my, 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 my parents' house, right? I had a place to see, but I, at my parents' house. I call her up and go, hey, man, want to come upstate? I, I think that seems to be bad or whatever. And she's like, no, I'm fine. I'm hunkered in or whatever. The day before, I was doing a radio show, and I happened to tell this story. I never I never really told it before, right? right? And so I tell her, I go, hey, you know what? Uh, you remember years ago when you came to the to that party and Ving Rhames was there and as a cowboy? And she goes, yeah. She goes, I still can't believe it. She goes, I've been telling people for years he's gay, but no one believes me. I go, whoa, hold on a second. <laughs> Mike, I'm telling you, this is like 20-something years later. I go, hold on a second. I didn't tell you how that night ended? And she goes, no. What are you talking about? I go, that wasn't him. She goes, what are you talking about? I go, that wasn't him. I took a picture with him. It wasn't him at all. It wasn't him. And she goes, are you kidding me, PJ? Are you kidding me? She goes, do you know how many people I've been arguing with for years? And I'm talking like serious actors in the African-American community. Like she's been, I've been going to, I would run by his house with people and I'd be like, I can't even believe it. I went to the mat. I go, that wasn't him. I'm sorry, but you've been, (laughs) you've been pushing a false narrative. So she had, dude, you didn't tell her before that she had no clue. I, it never came up. Right. So for years, for now, I've been like walking past those like tabloids and I've been waiting for like the truth comes out. <laughs> Ving Rhames is gay. I'm like, I did that. Wow. Oh so I think, gosh. I think someone, I think someone as stupid and as idiotic as myself put the gerbil in Richard Gere's ass. <laughs> right. It's that simple. That's how these things take off. And it was innocent. I was, it was innocent. I was a fan. I didn't want to take a picture. <laughs> all the I, dynamics, I was trying to cover all my bases. And you were even cognizant of the whole thing. Yeah, dude. And I'm talking about, this is way before present day. This was, you know, I mean, I traveled the world. You know, I've got, I'm very worldly, you know, so I didn't want to make any of those stupid mistakes for just for myself. Not like I was, po- there wasn't any social media or anything like back then. This is just strictly for myself. And if, <laughs> just to cover my bases, like, if Bing Rames was a gay black cowboy, I wanted to make sure I was right. right you know, and I, I asked the other, I asked a few other people there. I did, it just wasn't my friend who showed up. Like I covered, I'm like, hey man, oh yeah, it's Bing Rames for sure. So it wasn't just me. It was a whole smorgasbord of <laughs> ignorant morons. <laughs>
of all races and creeds too, man. I, I was I was asking everybody. This guy was a doppelganger. Oh my gosh! Do you still have the picture? I do. I'll send it to you. No. I do. It took me a while to file it. I, yeah. You know what? I'll send it to you right now. Let me just send it because I, I know I, I think I have it on. I have. I think I have it on this phone because I said to myself, dude, I have to like keep this for like every time this this story comes up because it's just. Oh yeah, here it is. Oh my god, dude. Oh, yeah. Okay, hold on. First, I'm gonna send it to my phone. That my I have it on my old phone. So okay, boom, got it. All right, now this is just is going to you. There you are. Bam, boom. <laughs> Where do you see? Right. Yeah, and you can just tell everybody, like everybody who's like listening. It's pretty close, <laughs> right? It does look like him. I'll give you that. It does look like. Him. And you can see in his face. But you see, like, that's the part where I realized, like, as soon as my hand touched his hand, I was like, this isn't him. And, like, do you like how the the belly button's hanging out and the top button? And, oh, man. Yeah. And the guy couldn't be happier. Yeah. You could be happier. You could see in his face, guaranteed he gets that all the time. Because you could see in his face that he thinks it's kind of funny. Maybe he even knows and he just goes along with it. Yeah, Yeah, maybe. I don't know, though. Like, I think he probably had, like, a bit part in, like, Hunter. Or one of those old shows, shows you know, Love Boat or TJ Hooker. Oh, you see my part on TJ Hooker? My arc on Dynasty? I can see it in your face like, oh, shit. Oh, my cheeks hurt. That's back when I wore sweaters. <laughs> Should have known. I mean, should have known. Look at that picture. That's a guy who makes nothing but bad choices and bad decisions. It's a V-neck with a black shirt underneath. (laughs) Or a turtleneck underneath. Or is that a turtleneck? Oh, man, I don't know. What is it? That's just... No, it's not a turtle. It's just like a sh- it's like a black shirt and then a blue V-neck long sleeve in Los Angeles. Okay, sure. I might as well have had a uh, I should, might as well have wore a wool hat like they do out in LA. Uh, you know, I got a wool hat on. I'm like it's 110 degrees in a dry heat. You're trying to look cool. Look at my look. My my cropped hair. That's undercover security right there. Oh yeah. By the yeah. way, look at how the guy towers over me. How yeah. helpful could I have possibly been? Is this right paid- out of the military? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was a little bit out. Yeah, you know what it was? I was a paid snitch. (laughs) (laughs) So what did they have you do? You get out of the military. Is this something like one of your military buddies has like a security thing that they do? No, that was uh, because when I got in the military, I went back to New York and then I went to school in Chicago and then back to New York and was doing comedy in New York, then went out to L.A. So it was just one of the odd jobs that I picked up. I was friends with Big Bruce and uh, he was in a few movies, big guy, and he would do security, and, and it made sense that he would do it. But then uh, he's like, hey, man, you want to do this? It's pretty simple. And uh, I was like, yeah, cool, man, I'll do it. And uh, I mean, I could take care of myself, but I mean, not in a, you know, whatever, like, way. It's, you know, so, um, I mean, my first move would be, let me call Big Bruce. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, yes. Got a problem? Yeah. Call Big Bruce, right. Yeah. So, uh, wow. yeah, it was just one of the odd, crazy job because I had so many different jobs when I first got there. Uh, I was David Faustino, Bud Bundy from Married with Children's uh, personal assistant and Elaine Hendricks as well, who was in The Parent Trap and in a, a, a bunch of movies, her personal assistant. I, I did both. And uh, like I had like Thanksgiving a few times over at Bud Bundy's house. It was pretty crazy. I did that. And then I also do for maybe three weeks, I escorted strippers. To bachelor parties. Oh, really? For like, yeah, yeah. I had a friend who, well, my main job, I worked at this ship and packing place, kind of like a, uh, what would be a UPS store or whatever. And my, my idea was if I get a job there, I could pack up all my videotapes and send them to comedy clubs because that's how you used to do it back then. You mm-hmm. you know, you can, you had to like create a tape and like, you know, send it. So that's when it was slow. That's basically what I did. I just sent tapes or whatever. And it, it's also where I learned it was, it was in the, it was uh, right out by all the studios. I really learned how harsh Hollywood was because I used to have, they had all these mailboxes and I used to have to put all the mail in. And a lot of the mailboxes were owned by production companies and casting companies. And all of these headshots would come in. And I would be putting like thousands of headshots in these in these boxes. And these are like stapled and glued and the, the resume on the back. And, you know, you people took like the mind hours and all this stuff, picking a picture and getting it brushed up for the photo and breaking down your resume perfectly. Mm-hmm. 
And I would watch these casting people come in and they grab a recycle bin and I'd watch them like just grab stacks of them. Look at them, rip it, drop it in. Look at them, rip it, drop it in. Look at it, rip it, drop it in. I'm talking about gorgeous human beings, guys, girls, like people like, you know, and I'm watching them. Dreams, bam, dreams, crush. Dreams cry, dreams boom, you know, just all of them just going and going and going. And I'm sitting there going, I don't stand a chance. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at my headshot and I'm like, this guy's not even gonna rip it. He's gonna wipe his ass with my stupid freckled face. Right. Oh my gosh. You worked in there? Like you did security or something? No, no, no. I, I actually worked at the place. Like I, it was one of the jobs. And then the, the, the guy who owned it was this guy, Richard. He was a great guy. I mean, he was, he was like my dad out West and he was, um, David Faustino's mother's boyfriend. So that's how I got cooked up with David. He was just the greatest guy. I mean, I love him. To, I loved him to death. He passed on a, a, a few years ago and he was always my first fan. He always called himself my first fan. He would always come to my shows and everything after. And every time I was back in LA, we'd go and eat. And he's just one of the greatest people, most impactful people in my life. So, but so he had another guy who worked there. And this guy was, uh, his name was uh, David Barbarino. I remember his name, like, yeah, I think it was David Bob Marino, and he was a theater guy, and he was doing Tony and Tina's wedding at the time, and oh, then he yeah. worked during the day. So he Tony, and he was full theater. Right at this point, I, I wasn't even interested in theater. Down the road, I would, but at this point, I was just strictly stand up. So one Christmas, a shipping and packing place gets really busy at Christmas time, right? So right. we had a line out the door. So David had a very feminine voice. He was very theatrical, super cool guy. There's a line out the door, and I'm working one customer over there who I known for a while, and then in walks Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons walks in, right? And everyone's like, oh, that's Gene Simmons. Right. Okay. And he walks past the entire line like they didn't exist and takes all of his boxes and puts them up on the table, right? <laughs> David doesn't even look at him. He's just doing his whole entire thing, whatever. Actually, his name was Michael, Michael Barbarino. Michael doesn't even look at him. He's just doing his thing. And then Gene goes, excuse me, pardon me. Right. <laughs> and me and my buddy, I remember the guy's name, Roy. We're looking at this, the corner ride, right? We're just kind of like, oh man, we got to see this. This is going to be awesome. Michael goes, uh, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, you're going to have to wait. Uh, I have a long line here. I'll get to you as soon as possible. And then he goes, uh, <clears throat> do you know who I am? I love a story when someone uses that. Do you know? <laughs> do you know who I am? I'm uh, Gene Simmons from Kiss. <laughs> I'll never forget. Mike. I'll never forget. Michael looks up at him and goes, well, Gene, it's nice to meet you. I'm Michael Bomarino from Tony and Tina's wedding. You still have to get in the back of the line. There's a lot of people before you. What was Gene's reaction? <laughs> he just stormed out of the place. Oh, Dude, I'm telling best. you, everybody in that place, it was like the greatest moment. We were all dying. It, like all those people waiting online. Oh, it's like an hour wait. It was worth it. Like oh, everybody yes. was happy. Yes. Have you heard Craig Gass? He does a Gene Simmons, but he knows him. And he said, he says that everywhere they go. Every chance he gets, it's, do you know who I am? I'm Gene Simmons. From oh, Kiss. really? I had no idea. Yes, he does it. I thought it was kind of a bit, and so he was exaggerating, but it sounds like he actually does No. It. Yeah, I know. I never knew that. Do you know who I am? Michael basically said, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, but he introduced himself. I'm Michael Bob Marino from Tony and Tina's Wedding. You're still going to have to wait, Gene. <laughs> I was on the floor, rolling, rolling, tears coming out of my eyes. But I wonder who felt stupider, right. Gene at that moment or me with gay Ving Rhames. I don't know who probably felt stupider. Probably me. <laughs> I still feel stupid. I feel stupid telling this story. <laughs> I think I ended my career that's really going nowhere. Uh, some dogs are... All right, lay down, please. He's a good-looking dog. What Chill. kind of dog is it? A lab? Dude, I'll tell you exactly. We just had a DNA test on, on him. Uh, 23 point... What, you don't want me to share with people what you are? You're shy? 23.2% Beagle, 14.5% American Pitbull Terrier, 12.4% American Foxhound, 10.9% Labrador Retriever, 9.7% Chow Chow, 8.7% Boxer, 8.2% American Stafford Terrier, 14.4% super mutt. So they just got lazy at the end. So what does that mean? They don't know the mutt part? Yeah, they don't They don't know. Did you know what kind he was? We knew the mom was a beagle because he was saved. Um, his, him and his letter were saved from um, a, a storm. So we knew the mom was a beagle. Um, but after that, we had no idea. We thought lab. We thought be we definitely saw lab. But then, right. and then we thought maybe pointer. But uh, yeah, 
who's going nuts right now. How do you do that? Yeah, do, you, do you send in like the hair? Uh, we swabbed his mouth. You know, I sat him down like I was, We, uh, my wife and I played good cop, bad cop, you know, and I, I said, hey, you want, I go, you want, you want to drink a Coke? Give him a drink. He took a little swig. And I was like, we got your DA now. We know he killed that squirrel. All right. <laughs> it's just like you, human. No, it's fine. Yeah. I didn't care. Right now, he's trying, he's trying to bite my hand off. He, he knew, hey, dude, just chill for a second. I got work to do. Where, where, where do you think all these bones come from? I got I, I to gotta do huge podcasts like Mike's. Do you know what the reviews of this, of, of this incredible podcast are, buddy? Hold on a second. I, let's see. Now, can you see me sweating? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dude, I'm all like, dude, never, never read reviews. Oh, never, never. Like, yeah, I can't, dude. If you ever read reviews, what you have to have, we have to do is have a friend read them. Mm. You know, so it's just super fun because right. you know the thing about it is, it's like you gotta take the good with the bad, right? And sometimes there might be some truth in there or whatever. But here's that guy's on a truth, Mike. There's nothing anybody like out there can say that's more damaging and more negative than what we've said or thought about ourselves. Exactly. So as long as you keep that, you're like, all right. Right. You know? Yeah. No, you know? that's true. That's true. You Because we focus on the one, like we'll have a great show, but you focus on the one person that's not laughing and that drives you up a wall. Yeah, I used to uh, I used to do that, and then it just kind of faded away because my, for some reason I got in my head. I'm like, I don't know what kind of day they had, or maybe their face is paralyzed. Who the hell knows? Okay, I got I got <laughs> things to talk about, and it just kind of you know, I don't know. And eventually, yeah. if they if they laugh, cool. But um, if everybody's not laughing, then that's an issue. One person, whatever. Yes. Do you, you know, not everybody. Do you remember? I was thinking about this the other day. Do you remember when we hey. did Appleton, Wisconsin? Yeah. I think it's what's it called the Skyview Comedy Club Skyline Skyline Comedy Skyline Club. Skyline Comedy Club <clears throat> yeah so yeah. that first day so we were there was it Tuesday through Sunday Saturday? I think it's Thursday Friday Saturday I think something like that yeah one of those I think it was like even longer than that I swear it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday that we started and went till Sunday Oh well, maybe but uh, so uh, I don't, probably I used to pack the houses yeah. Well, it's a great Back in the day. It's a great club because I I featured for you, so I I was there with you. And yeah. I, do you remember, like the first day, the first two days, I just completely ate it. Like it was like it was so brutal. And and then it was I think the Friday or no the Thursday. Then I then I came back and I did you know, did what I usually do. And then Friday first show. I, I I did it again. I like killed again, and I went up to you, and I was like, "I'm back." Is, hold on a second. Is that is that what you're claiming you usually do? Oh, shut up! No, nope. shut up. <laughs> because you know like when I you mean. said usually, when you said I did what I usually do, and I was like, "Oh, okay, you ate shit again." I got it. All right. <laughs> did you see how fast I was trying no, to go over that no, after no, I said no, it? <laughs> no break, no break in the pattern. <laughs> so, do you remember I came up to you and I was like, "I'm back." I'm back. I got all cocky because I just ate crap the first two nights. And I told you I'm back. And then the Friday late show happened. And then I just completely ate it again. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, dude. It was. Oh. That's the thing about comedy. Yeah. It's such it's like it's, it's such a humbler. You know, yes. you think you can, you know. And I usually think wherever you're the most comfortable will bite you the hardest. Yeah. Like when you walk in, you're like, oh, I've, I've, I've crushed this room and this is that. And I've been here a bunch of times. And then that's the one that comes and, and it, it like hits you in the back of the head, like hard. Yeah. And you're like, cause you don't see it coming. Cause you're so like, oh yeah, I've been here, but I'm, I'm, I'm so comfortable here. These people, I, I, you know, I don't even have to do an act. Right. I, I take the stage. My <laughs> essence just destroys the room. <laughs> Then you get donkey punched in the back right, of the head. Right. right. <laughs> you drive home and question every single choice you've ever made in your life. Yes. Yes. And it's and, excruciating. Unless you have a second one. show. Oh, that's what makes the second shows on like on a Saturday, the late night Saturday show. Well, late night Friday shows usually, you know, I think Steve Martin said it. Why do you leave stand up? He goes, second show Friday night. Because that's when people are tired. They've been working. Right. But if you have a bad one on Saturday, like you fly home with that. Yeah, and then you have to wait till yeah, the next week. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, or yeah, or try to get back on stage, and it just sits. It just sits there. You know, I mean, because if you just brush it off, then like I don't know. I just never been one to brush it off. Nobody, nobody likes a, the stank of a bombing on them. Right. You know, you're sitting in the air. You're sitting in the airport, and you, you walk past first class, and you're like, yeah, I don't deserve it. <laughs> they try to give you a cookie, and you're like, you know what happened? You just want me to feel better about myself. <laughs> We're so selfish. Everything's about us. Right. 
And then I think even to add insult to injury, I think my flight, I think they oversold the flight. So I ended up missing the flight and I had to stay another day or something. Oh, really? I think so. Yeah. yeah, In Appleton. I remember I was landing in Appleton one time because you kind of, you go to Chicago and then you take the little puddle jumper in Appleton. Yeah. And there's a guy sitting next to me and the announcer goes, she goes, oh. We're about to uh, descend into, I think it's like called like Fox something airport or whatever, and uh, the Appleton, whatever, the Appleton airport. And if you have a connecting flight, and I looked at the guy, I go, connecting flight? Like, this is a place you start and stop, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no one's going to Detroit via Appleton. <laughs> I don't five-hour layover in Appleton. Oh, my God. Right, and they only have, like, five gates there. So, yeah, who in the hell is going to? Yeah, I was like, what? What? She got stuck in her, her, her regular wrap. Right, of the, that's you know, what it was. Mixed yeah. it. Yeah. Dude, you were, like, the funnest to go on the road with, by the way. Dude, it was, it was. Like, absolutely. Oh, funnest. it was same it, with you. It was like, I was thinking back to it, and it was like, it was crazy to call that work, because it was just so much fun. I like I can't even explain like I wish we had a camera because some of the craziest things that have ever happened or the funniest things I should say that have ever happened oh yeah we're with you yeah yeah there's I don't think there's a way people can even I don't even like a camera wouldn't have got it because what's I think what was beautiful about it is and I think that's one of the hard parts I I, I hard about like entertainment now because everybody's trying to do something on camera but the minute you make a choice like i always say this about comedy the minute you make the choice to be a professional comedian you'll never be as funny as you were seconds before you made that choice because now it became now now it's become an agenda what made it beautiful about when we went on the road is we just got to do stand-up we're doing stand-up but whatever else was happening we weren't trying to make videos it was just life coming at us man the crazy of traveling this country and with the wackiness that ha- it, not brought upon, not manipulated, just pure insanity. Right. And there's, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm not big on social media and things like that. Cause I think a lot of, th- a lot of times you're working within these bumpers. Like they, they create these bumpers that people work with and they don't think they're working within them. You know, they just try to like, Oh, I'm trying to, no, you're, right. you're playing to certain things. Creativity and art works outside the, the colored lines, you know? So, and what we were doing was just living outside the colored lines, dude. And it was amazing. It was, it was, a, it was the best time. Oh yeah. It was unbelievable. And then I would go out on the road with someone else and it would just be almost excruciating. Like some of them were excruciating, but some were just like, ah, uh, okay, now it's work. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, dude. I would go to like, I'd end up going to like some funny bone or someplace and there'd be like an MC and a feature and they'd be like, they think they should be the the headline right. or something. And, and then I just, or I go do a college and you're by yourself and I'm like, yeah, none of it's fun. You know, you've, the greatest part is about being with friends and doing that whole entire thing. So the further you get down the line, you're just kind of by yourself, you know, yeah. all right, I made a bunch of faceless people laugh and I, you're thankful for all that. But as far as like any personal, you know, like joy, it's kind of, sometimes it gets a little bit stifled. That's when it turns into work, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, and you also kind of, there's a fine line you have to watch. I remember when I was I was torn with uh, the cable guy, right? I was out with Larry, and I remember I was on stage one time, and it was like 15,000 people, and they have these screens. And I could see myself in the screen, and I'm telling a joke. I know what was coming, and I like touched the stool, and there's this huge roar from the audience, and I feel this rush, and I can see myself in the screen out of the corner of my eye. And I'm like, wow, this is really cool. And I think I got like a, you know, standing O or something like that. And, you know, something that made me feel real, real good. You know, and I bring him up and it was this huge rush of like, you know, 15,000 people loving you. And they didn't know who I am. I was a bumper in a road to get to the cable guy. So it was a purity of the sport. I felt like, oh man, I really got him on my comedy. And it's that, I don't know, within like 30 seconds, I'm downstairs in the green room drinking a Diet Coke, eating a chicken wing by myself. Right. <laughs> like as lonely as a lonely got. Yeah. All that rush of all that, all of that. But nobody was there. No, like they didn't really know me. And I and that's when it hit me. I'm like, ooh, this could really mess with your mind. If you're not on top of it, you know. And then I think I think I, I quit drinking, uh, you know, and I because I was like in this position to kind of like look and take everything in. I didn't I never wanted to miss anything or not appreciate an opportunity or or soak up uh, an opportunity. And again, that's another reason why I'm not really huge on like social media because I, I, I like the purity. I like the purity of, I don't like being tipped off to what's going on. I, I, I like having a conversation. I don't need to look at a plate of what somebody likes to eat. I like to sit 
back and have a meal with them and be like, oh, that seems like it's pretty good to eat. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't need yeah. to see it on your feed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I like to get I like to get all in a bulk. I like to sit down with a friend and find out who died, who had a baby, you know, uh, yeah. all that stuff, all in one big. Did you hear so and so died? I didn't. All right, who else? Get it all in one shot. <laughs> yeah, Go off the band aid. Yeah, that's the problem. Can you survive in today's entertainment industry without social media? That's so. I think it's. I mean, it's a really good question because I used to think I was narcissistic in a way of like, yeah, I had PJWalsh.com and come see me. I'm telling you my stories, blah blah blah. And then social media came around, and I'm like, I am nothing compared to regular people. Like yeah. regular people are so much worse than I am. I just want to. <laughs> make people laugh and tell stories. That's it. And so it is a reach and it is a way to take over your own power. So for me, I think what I've defined myself and where I'm going, kind of coming out of this whole entire thing we went through, kind of feels like a reset is I'm going to have social media. I'm not going to use it, Mm. which means like, I'm on like, I think 150 days of not even opening anything. But if I need to do anything, my wife will post it or something like that. Cause it's like, I don't really need to, um, I don't know. Like, I, I, like, what am I going to post? You know, what, what I'm, I don't know. It just makes, it's just weird to me. The whole, idea of it. I, I'll tell you, I always veer off into a story. This is where it started to hit me. Years ago, I quit drinking because I didn't like the person when he drank. Mm. I became the person I don't like. And I'm like, well, I have a choice. I don't like that person. I thought I was better looking than I am. I thought I was cockier than I am and all that kind of stuff, right? And I'm like, I don't like that that guy. Yeah. He's, a, he's a dick. So I had a choice to get rid of him, and I did. So I just quit drinking. Then when I started, like social media started happening, I kind of started to see a little bit of that, a little bit of hey, it's me and I got an opinion on this. And and they kind of, like I said, it, you, it makes you work within these like lines of like, as a comedian, you have to have a joke. You have to have some, everyone had something to say about everything. And I'm a big believer. If you have something to say about everything, you don't really believe in something, yeah. you know? So everybody has their important things, right. but you know, you really want to pay attention to certain things. So, and then all these things started, I started taking breaks and stuff like that. And before my wedding, I think I was off for like six months and like my wife would post things and shows, but I wouldn't do any of that. Like I wanted to, enjoy my wedding. I wanted to be present and all that stuff. And the thing that hit me was I was doing a show at the uh, Virginia Beach Funny Bone and I'm up, I'm upstairs and my wife comes up and she goes, Hey, there's a guy here named Kenny. She knows his last name. And, and she goes, and he says he went to school with you and wrestled with you at Brewster. And I go, Kenny, his name Kenny Brooks. Kenny Brooks is here in this building right now. She goes, yeah. I go, right now, in this building. And she goes, yeah. And I go, oh my God. She goes, she wants to come up and see you. I've never, I go, oh my God, bring him up. So Kenny comes up and I see him and I'm like, dude, like we were on the wrestling team together in high school. Uh, he was one of my best friends. He joined the Navy when I joined the Navy. I hadn't seen him since 1996, 97. He used to come to my shows in the very beginning and we just hug each other. And he's on no social media, like because he he has like a, a high up job in the Navy. He doesn't have any of it. And what hit me was my wife told me on the way back, she goes, I never seen you so elated and so happy to see someone. And it dawned on me is because I didn't get tipped off. He didn't text me. He didn't send me a message on Instagram or something like, hey, man, I'm coming to see your show. I got to see him and feel that joy of someone who was a huge part of my life, someone who I love instantly, like catching up, boom, jokes flying. And it made me go, how much joy am I taking away from myself by being too connected? Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and I, I will take... I'll take those moments of joy over the other, you know, uh, and that's just how, how, how I roll. And it's the the job now is to figure out the balance, Mm -hmm. to figure out the balance of like, okay, how can I promote myself? Because clearly like, it's also incredibly useful. You you get rid of some gatekeepers, you start getting millions of people and whatever. And clearly it it works, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's also funny to talk to somebody who I went to dinner with, with, with Kenny and like a podcast. And I remember him saying this, this is really funny. He goes, he was talking about how somebody asked him, somebody in his family asked him to, listen to the Joe Rogan podcast. And he's like, yeah, listen to this, uh, this podcast. And I just love hang, hanging out with people who are so not in the business. And, um, oh, yeah. he goes, what do you mean? He, he you mean the UF, the UFC guy, the, the fear factor guy. And he's like, yeah, yeah. He's like the biggest podcast in the world. Like he, like everyone's in. He's like, all right. So he's like, he gives him the phone to look at it. And, and he's like, he expected to see him fight or something like that. And it's just him. He's in there talking. And he's like, okay, what? He goes, well, listen to what he's saying. He goes, what's he saying? Like the people on the right don't like the people on the left. The people on the left don't like the people on the right. And the people on the coast don't like the middle and the, and the middle doesn't like the coast. <laughs> right. Eh, genius. I'm not wasting my time listening, watching somebody talk. And dude, wow, that's brilliant. When he, when he told me that, yeah. Yeah, when he told me that, I was like, ah, what I do is so stupid. <laughs> what we're doing right now is so stupid, so worthless in the great greater scheme of things. Isn't it? <laughs> oh my God. And everyone takes it so serious. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. That puts a bow on it. Yeah. Yeah. We all know it. We all know the game. Right. 
And so he's not I mean, on it's, like it's anything. High it's high fidelity. It's a high fidelity. It's the yeah. same story over and over again. It's a remake over and over. A bad remake. Yeah. And by the way, that is no diss on on on, on podcasts and the people who are huge in them. I mean, clearly they're you know they're awesome and amazing. Right. But uh, but it was funny to hear that, like from somebody right. who he. And the funny part is, I don't think people understand there is a greater number of people who can give two shits about any of it. There's probably three branches of it. And then the middle where they could take it or leave it. And then there's the people that could not care less and have no clue what any of it is, basically. I know. Yeah, I want that mentality, but an entertainer. Yeah. Because when I worked in the, when I worked in the White House, how I got to the White House, I had to do all these clearances to just a little bit. I used to do all the dental in the White House, and I had to get the top secret clearance for that, the FBI and all these interviews at Camp David and all these kind of things. And the, the reason I got it is I never thought I'd pass any of it. Yeah. I didn't think they would take me. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I'd pass the FBI clearance. I didn't think I would pass the interviews. I went in there and I was like, once they figure me out, I'm out. Yeah. Right. So I just enjoyed myself through the entire process. I was right. just telling jokes. Like I, me- I remember like at Camp David, I had this interview and a guy goes, um, he goes, are you married? And I go, why would I wrinkle my face so young? <laughs> like I was just firing back. Do you ever say yes? And I go, yep. And that was it. I didn't care. Right, you were And it's real. not that I didn't yeah. care. It's just like, I didn't, no way are they letting me in the mouth of the president of the United States. What are they, <laughs> freaking nuts? Did they see my picture from high school? The mullet and the Camaro and the Marlboro lights? They're gonna, now they're going to give me a scalpel and the leader of free world is going to be right here in front of me? No way that's happening. So how did that come about? You By the interviews, but you were in the Navy, right? And then do they pick like a couple of you to come interview? Yeah, so it's interesting because... Uh, it paralleled comedy in a way. I joined the Navy, and then I picked as my duty station in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, to be FMF, which is Field Medical Service, or FMS, I forget what they call it anyway. But basically, all medical and dental for the Marine Corps is provided by the Navy. A lot of people don't know this, but the Marine Corps is a division of the Navy. The Navy actually owns the Marine Corps and all that kind of stuff. So, so all medical and dental and all that stuff is in payroll and all that's from the Navy. So I actually chose to be what they would call green side, which is to be with the Marines. So I went to Field Medical Service uh, School to tra- be trained as a field medic, but I was also a dental technician, and I got stationed in Camp Lejeune and end up in the, in the Gulf on a ship for six months uh, attached to a Marine unit. And it was kind of like the cleanup crew. I, I think the 100-hour war ended in like March of, I think, 91. I went over from August of 91 to like February of 92. So technically, I think I still was in the bubble. I really don't know what the whole time frame is. But the captain who sent me there was Reagan's dentist, right, prior to coming to Camp Lejeune. And he was up at Bethesda Naval Hospital. And he had this picture of him and Reagan in his office. And he was really nice for me. He would he, like, when I was out and deployed, he'd send me things. And then another guy that I was stationed with down there happened to be Tony Woods. Now, Tony Woods, you might know him from, uh, if you watch Dave Chappelle, when he got the Mark Twain prize at the Kennedy Honors, he pointed out Tony Woods saying, that's who I want to be. That was my hero when I first started stand-up. He's like the, the godfather. Tony and I were stationed together. So he was the very first person who was a comedian that I'd met. He's like, yeah, do comedy. You're funny, dude. You should do comedy, man. I was like, oh. So I know he was up in D.C. Right. So what I ended up doing was, when I came back, I, I was up for my new next duty station. I wanted to start doing stand-up. And I started looking at places. They wouldn't send me to like Los Angeles. They wouldn't change my duty station and go from East Coast to West Coast. So my captain said, you should go to Bethesda because I bet you become a dental technician for the president of the United States. And I go, huh? And I'm looking over his shoulder and there's a picture of him shaking the president's hand in the Oval Office. And I'm like, huh. So there were two reasons why I picked Bethesda. One, I knew it was close to DC and I could do, do stand up. And two, yeah, okay. Like maybe, maybe there's something to it. So I get to Bethesda and I'm there for about a year, just working my way up. And then my chief comes in and he goes, he was a Filipino guy. He goes, hey, Walsh, I nominate you for president job. Oh my God. Simple. Bam. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, I think, you know, he's like, I think you'd get it. So I'm like, wow, that's crazy because it had been planted in my head. Right. So then there was a whole bunch of interviews. And then my best friend, uh, one of my best friends to this day, uh, Ken Mebo was also, my other two roommates were nominated too. And, uh, one had, had finances were messed up because that's how they get you. If you have bad finances, you'll never get clearance because that's how they get the crutch. You know, so uh, it was before I became a professional comedian. So my finances were perfect. Um, no way they get me after. Because um, <laughs> that's how they go. Like you were saying, that's how they get someone to turn. Like that's how they get yeah, an inside yeah. man. Is with money. Okay. Yeah. Never trust a comedian. None of us. Right. A struggling comedian? Forget about it. I'm like, give me the poison floss. <laughs> How much am I getting? Five grand? I'll do it. Done. I can live off that for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's a whole year's salary. Done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, like, 
I got the interviews and and I went in and I didn't have the I didn't have a care in the world. And next thing you know, they're, they're like, you got it. But dude, when I look back and think about it, they deep dived. Like they called my <laughs> they called like my, all my friends from high school. Like I had to do all this stuff and put people down. And one of my best friends from high school, they called him after he got back from a Grateful Dead concert, and he was totally like on on acid and <laughs> and he picked up the phone and the FBI. And luckily, his mom picked up the phone at the same time, and they're like, um, "This is the FBI. We have some questions about Patrick Joseph Walsh." And he's like, "Walshy man, uh, you know, Peach, you know, what's up with Peach, man?" And like, uh, would he ever betray his country? That Irish bastard? I don't know, man. Um, his parents are immigrant. And his mom's like, "Get off the phone! Get off the phone! Get off the phone!" It was like they like crazy things happen. And this dentist that I worked like the funniest guy I've ever met in my life. This guy Julio Heller. He's who I went to the Gulf with. The dentist I went Peruvian dude. We used to hang out. He's so funny. Well, he gets out of the Navy. He's one of my references, and he's now practicing dentistry in Marshfield, Wisconsin. So he calls me up and he goes, hey, Walsh, look, man. So I'm I'm just working on my patients. Next thing you know, I'll get a call at the front desk. There are two guys in suits there. And they're like, uh, we would like to speak with you uh, on some break about uh, Patrick Joseph Walsh. And he's like, um, uh, okay. So I wait to lunch. I go back to the break room. There's a big round table. These two guys are sitting behind it and spread out on the table are like 50 pictures of you. Oh. Like you driving your car, you shopping, all these other things. He goes, like they were telling you? Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, I always tell people, like, there's pictures of you uh, driving your car, you at the gym, you, another whole album, you getting turned down by girls at bars. Like, <laughs> album one, album two, album three, you know, just, and it had sad faces on it. Uh, and then he goes, he goes, he walks up, he looks at all the pictures, and they go, let me ask you some questions about Patrick Joseph Walsh. And he looks down, and he goes, Walshy, what the hell did he do? <laughs> But I did all this crazy stuff, Mike. That's and what I, I would Here's think. the truth. Yeah. But they interviewed my roommates. They did. They went back to my high school. They did all these kind of things. And then at the end, I sat across from this uh, FBI guy in this room in Bethesda, which is now Walter Reed. Big mahogany table. He had a, like a blue suit on. I remember he had a, a tie and it had like ducks on it or something. And I was like, that's kind of weird. But And he had a stack of papers and all these kind of things. And then he put his hand down and he shook my hand. And he goes, congratulations, Mr. Walsh. Uh, you're Yankee white, which is what they called top seeker clearance, which I didn't know. Oh. I didn't know that's what they, I was like, is that my code name i'm like hmm I got it's pretty accurate. I'm white and I'm from New York. Right. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, and then he shook my hand and he said, I'm going to tell you something. I've been doing this for years. He's like background checks and interviews. And he goes, if something came up with you more than normal, he goes, everybody we talked to from your high school to your shipmates and all around said, you're the one person they know who says when he's, when he says he's going to do something really does it. And he goes, that's a rare quality. Oh, Keep that son. Wow. Yeah, dude. I mean, I was like 20, 21 at the time. I remember just feeling such pride and especially in the fact that my shipmates thought that. Oh, yeah. You know, I was like, all right, cool. You know, wow. so and I think I kind of kept that. I mean, I've been in so many. I've been a best man so many times at wedding parties and stuff. I mean, I was in your yeah. uh, wedding party. I think it's it, it, it's something I try to keep alive in the fact that you can be reliable and, you know, a solid friend. So, yeah, yeah man. Yeah, it was crazy. And then I got to the White House. <laughs> that was crazy. Were you they scared? Were, How were you scared? Were you excited when they tell you you're going? to the White House. I think I would be terrified. So here's the thing. I don't think it's one of these... It's one of these things where because I was in a process of it, it's like when I toured with the cable guy uh, and, and I was talking about the parallel. So at the same time, people would come up to me and be like, you need to be a comedian. Like I met Tony. So like that was being planted in and then strangers would be like, so then I started doing comedy. So it was always like these little signs. Like I would think life gives you these like little signs if you could recognize them. Like somebody you don't know says something about yourself and you're like, oh man, I thought that and kind of leads you down the road if you if if you will. Right. Um, so the, when I got there, uh, I mean, I, I had done so many levels that by the time I walked into the White House, it was like, okay, this is this is what I do. And it's kind of like when I got to play 15,000 people with Larry the Cable Guy, it's like I did clubs, I did open mics, I did a whole bunch of different things. And then he was doing 1,000 seats and then he was doing 5,000. And by the time I got to 15, I was kind of taken, I wasn't intimidated because it was like, okay, this is just the next step. Right. So that's kind of how it was, mm. you know, in, in a way. And, and it was pretty cool. Yeah, but you know what the best part is? And this was my point. I haven't even let you play your intro yet. Has it happened? I know. I know. I just, I gave up. I was getting ready for it. Whole, my like, whole oh. goal was to try to push you for putting your intro. I want you, I want the intro to be an exit, exit tro, whatever you call it. Exit music. I don't know what you call it. Yeah. Yeah, man. The white, you know, just to tell you a little more about the, the, the White House yeah. is it was definitely like, I was there for a shifting period in, in the world. When I first got there, it was like a college campus. It was crazy. Everybody, it, you know, it was nuts. And then Oklahoma City bombing happened. And that was like the first 
like hint of the world changing because I guess they said that that van that Timothy McVeigh drove, if it would have pulled up to Pennsylvania Avenue, it would have affected the White House. So they closed down Pennsylvania Avenue. And then to get into White House, you had to have the Yankee white clearance. You had to have like a clearance. So it changed overnight in that fashion. So that was pretty wild to watch. And then there was like somebody pulled out, it wasn't an AK-47, but like something sort of like AK-47 and shot the white, at the White House. So when you were I there. came there the next, not when I was there, but I was there the next day and you could see all the bullet holes into in the press room and all that kind of stuff. And, and then the next day, I actually showed up the day after a, a Cessna plane landed into the White House, but the president and his wife weren't there. They were actually in across the street. There was another residence I think they were at. But like I showed up that day, like my doctor and I to do some work. And there was, I guess there was a, a woman who was a nurse. There's always somebody on duty there. And it was like her first night and she heard something. So she called the front and it turned out like the plane like stopped right up against the window. It was like a lot of weird kind of odd things. But the thing that I would always do when I'd leave, especially the times I was there on my own, was I'd walk out and sit in a park and look at the White House. And I'd look at all the like school buses and everybody that would kind of like go in and take pictures in front of it, in front of the gate and stuff. And I would think about it and be like, man, I uh, I can walk in there whenever I want. And it hit me in a way of like, if you showed me a picture, like in high school, if you showed me a picture of the moon and a picture of the White House, they were the same distance away from me. Like, mm -mm. right. PJ Walsh was not getting to either of those. (laughs) <laughs> and here I was into the, into the White House, you know? And it was just off my work ethic. It wasn't like something I really, really wanted to do. And that made me go, eh, you know what? If I wanted to be a comedian and, and go for my dreams, they're achievable. That walking into the Oval Office and shaking the president's hand and all that whole process said, yeah, be a comedian. And also like going overseas and having the reality of war also made me go, look, life is short. I'm going to do what I want to do. Uh, man, that's a good point. That would be like the key to thinking I, you, I can do anything. I can do whatever I want. That's why, and because you were on like a first name basis with the president and the first lady, right? Well, the uh, the first lady so she was Maybe kind was, of busy, but yeah, yeah. The, yeah, she remembered. She she had a, yeah, we had good good conversations and things. She she was very interesting in a way. Like yeah, people might I don't I don't care about like whatever people's political opinions are. Like uh, I got to meet people personally. So and when you're in a dental chair, it's like a personal thing. It's not a political thing. So right. and she was very interested where I was going. She remembered my sisters, what I was going to do with my life, and yeah, you know, I appreciated that. I thought that was pretty cool. Now does that mean that I trust anybody? As far as their political thing, no. I mean, that's a job where you get pe- get places off favors and other people's money. Of course, you can be compromised if you're in too long. I mean, it's writings on the wall. Come yeah, on, exactly. Um, yeah, like there's two things I always believe, Mike. Time is the ultimate truth teller, and I think that's the problem with the world right now. Is people want everything instantly, and I'm like, no. Time reveals all. And the other thing is, what's it like when you take influence and money away? Who are you then? Mm. You know? Yeah. Values versus compromised opportunities. Mm. You know, so right. that's why nobody knows who I am, Mike, because I live by that <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> but I sleep, I sleep comfortably at night. That's, yeah. a, that's another thing I used to say all the time. If you make decisions in the entertainment business, maybe probably any business, if you make decisions to rest your head comfortably on the pillow at night, just understand that in business, and especially the entertainment business, they don't got pillows. They, sh- mm. they sleep on shards of glass. <laughs> yeah. Do you want all the fame? Do you want to achieve that with it? Or do you want to just be able to say you're a comedian, basically, and, you know, live comfortably, obviously? Or do you not want the fame? Well, here's here's the catch of when it comes to being a comedian or, like, any kind of, like, performer where you need an audience. Fame is having an audience. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can like truck around and grind it out all over the place in, in rooms and that, but of course you want an audience. Of course you want people to build a fan base and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, yes, but at the same time, to be famous isn't what I'm trying to achieve. Mm. To like, to me, you know, uh, I'm always trying to push myself creatively. So like first it was stand up and then, and that went well. And I think once I got the radio studio music hall, I was like, okay. And it wasn't like I sold it out, but I got to it. And I was like, okay, that's what I want to do stand up wise. And then, then I want to tell a story about service and I ended up in a C-130 full of flag draped coffins and all the trips I've done overseas, entertaining troops. And, you know, I, I'd been dealing with war since I've been 18 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and I got to a certain point, like, you know, I'm in my thirties and forties and still dealing with war. And so I wanted to tell that story and the story of the White House and, and the story of service. So that became a thing that I needed to do because at a certain right. point I realized like, I talk for a living. I communicate for a living. Right. So I should be able to communicate the hard stuff. So then I left stand-up for two years and went to theater school to learn how to talk about the hard stuff. And I created a one-man show and toured with that and fortunately won some awards and and, and things. And But then again, it was something that's like, it was theater. Nobody cared. It cost right. me more to do it. Um, so what's the difference between regular stand-up and a one-man show? 
So I think the I, I think stand up in a way you're in a club, people are drinking. There's I, I, there's just kind of like a contract. It's in a way like stand up is where people go to forget, and theaters where people go to feel. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So like in a when you walk into a theater, it's almost a contract to be taken on a journey, to have some empathy, to have some laughs. And for a lot of people, when you come into a stand up, it's like all right, I'm gonna have a couple drinks, just make me laugh. I want to hear some jokes. Like I don't want to have anything too serious. And I wanted to kind of bridge that gap. Now I think there there are lines down there, are places where stand up get to do different things like that there are people like hannah gatsby and and like dave Chappelle right now who were kind of like pushing things and i think hannah gatsby was, it was more of a one person show i learned a lot from it you know it wasn't full of laughs and it was actually against humor but i'd seen things like that before because i've been in the fringe festivals i've seen people tell their stories about like being molested and somehow you're laughing you know and you're like whoa Jeez. so i've seen people like step into darkness and use the art to kind of share their story so yeah so i think it's it, it, there's just like a little bit of difference and that's what i was trying to do because I was like getting to the the gut punch at the end of what service is and how there are men and women and families all across this country that live every single day with the fear of their their kids being overseas or their father or mother or they've been taken you know that's the reality and we have all this other stuff that kind of stifles it. It's popular right now again because we've pulled out. So everyone feels like they're going to talk about it. But it's something that I've been dealing with. I've been, I mean, I've been going to Afghanistan since 2003. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's always there for me. I'm in constant awareness that there is somebody living uncomfortably right now for you and I to have the freedom of this conversation. Right. That's constantly in my bones and on my mind. And I'm incredibly thankful for that person. And it's whether it's it's where we should be or shouldn't be, that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because we asked them to. They're doing it because of good fortune we have to do this. Make something funny after that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you, okay. Let just me, just let, play the intro music now. Let me drive. <laughs> Do you gain that appreciation from when you were in the military and you went overseas or is it from the USO because you've been doing the USO tours over in Afghanistan, like you said, since 02, 03? Yeah, I, you know what? It's interesting. I had it in when I went over and we had the, like the first one, but like a scare to me, nothing, I didn't have anything, but I had this like moment, like where I got to my duty station and I was going to find out if I was going overseas. And, and when they were like, this is going to be the bloodiest war ever. And as a field medic, your life expectancy is seven seconds in a firefight and all this. And so this, and I'm 18 and like, it was real. We hadn't had any conflicts. It's like, you know, Vietnam. So I mean, little things here and there, but nothing like this. And so I was going to find out if I was going. And then that night, the night before, I was going to find out if I was heading on over, um, like right after I got out of training. I ended up in a room by myself, which was really interesting. I ended up in this room with all these bunks and it was just me. And the thing about, I always say like in this country is two things that are, it's awful to be young or old. Like we take advantage, we don't care about our old people. Like we don't, and we take advantage of our young. And the way that it works is like you have all these men and women next to you that it's a brother and sisterhood. You will do anything for them and, and all this. They were all taken away. It was just me and my thoughts. And when you're alone with your thoughts, that's when it creeps in. And I remember that night just thinking, I remember distinctly going, I might have to kill somebody. Mm. Like, I remember just thinking, like, really? Not not like, oh, like, I really have to take a life. Mm. Somebody with a brother and sister and parents that would miss them just like me. And I always said that, that was the night my innocence walked away. Mm. Like, I wasn't the same with that realization. Now, thank God I never had to come close to that. But Coming down to years now, when I go over and entertain, and I'm, I work with nonprofits with with, uh, with veterans and disabled athletes, I've I, I met people. I, I've seen the results that are still happening. You know, twenty years down the road of a thought that I had, and so it continues to shape me as like an empathetic human being. And it also is it's incredibly like heartbreaking that. Uh, we're just not smart. Like I've stood, I've stood in the same places I was in when I was in the military and overseas. Mm-hmm. I've stood in there, you know, 15 years later as an entertainer on the same ships in the same body of water in the same USO clubs dealing with the same shit. Right. And I'm like, okay, I know I've grown as a human, but clearly as a whole, we haven't. This is the same place. And like, I, I mean, I don't know, but that's just my experience. It's kind of like, okay, I'm right here again. Mm. Huh. That to me kind of messed with my head, to be honest with you. Mike. Like that's when I kind of had a turn of like, I had to do the one man show. I had to do something to kind of like figure all this out. I just couldn't sit in a comedy club and tell jokes and mess with the audience and just get laughs. Because when I go home to like the, uh, or I go to the hotel, I was just, I was still thinking about the C-130. I was sitting in for five hours with flag draped coffins. It was just there. Mm. And I was like, well, I got to I gotta talk about that. I've got to do whatever justice I can do for them. Is the one-man show, do you think that was more like a therapy thing? Oh, totally. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was definitely something I needed to. Yeah. I just, I'm not really somebody who's like a, a depressed person, but there was this thing hanging over me, you know, like stand up wasn't enough. And in a way, still it isn't, you know. So there was this thing that was just kind of like, all right. And I'd seen the biggest. I, I was out with the biggest there was. And I was looking at that and going, eh. <laughs> yeah. You know, so my appreciation and value system and, and, and things were different in a way of like what I witnessed to achieve that, if that makes sense. And I kind of like was kind of thinking in a way of more selflessness, if that makes sense. At the end of the day, I the day after I graduated high school, I joined the service to serve. So that's who I am. I'm That's my nature is to be of service. So in a way, my nature goes against my occupation, uh, which is... Um, me, 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 me. <laughs> you know? um, but there are moments of like when you get a letter from somebody or you get something that says, hey, you, you did this for me. I, I, I didn't laugh and this, that. So, I mean, it, there is a balance to it. And that's why I end up doing so many shows for nonprofits and things like that because I, I work better when it's something bigger than myself. And that's why that's I felt the one-man show was. I was like, okay, this is my story, but it's a story that's bigger than myself. Is a one-man show, is that something you want to keep doing? Because I think you, you stopped a couple of years ago, right? You stopped performing it yeah i did because one it like i'll never ever regret doing it because of all like the gold star family members and people who've said okay you thanked me and and come out and and it's touched and stuff like that and and the people who didn't know anything about service who kind of was like oh okay and i've had people who's like i've called my cousin and this because i never really understood it i'll never ever regret doing that but what was hard was visiting that place over and over again visiting like telling my story which is fine a bunch of like little stories leading up but getting into that c-130 again and emotionally bringing myself there like night after night and it's sometimes for seven people sometimes for 70 people sometimes for 100 people you know you just got to bring that same energy so it wasn't something i wanted to continue doing on a regular basis mm-hmm. um but it is something I'm, I'm, i wouldn't mind revisiting now that it's been a been i don't know 10 years or something like that so yeah. do you do you consider do you consider it like that you had ptsd like it almost sounds like you had it laying in bed thinking about all that stuff no yeah yeah, yeah i mean and, and it's hard for actually my a lot of military friends we've had this conversation and, and people who've had it much much worse than me because i don't think i've i think I, my experience has been incredibly fortunate, but I've had a continued psychological experience, if that makes sense. And, you know, you, I grew up Irish, my parents are immigrants. We don't like, what? Psychological feelings? What do you call it? You know, like I always joke with my wife. She's like, why don't you let me process my feelings? I'm like, I don't even think that was an option. Process them? What are you talking about? Yeah. Deny, deny or bury them. Mm. That, that, that makes sense. But once I started kind of realizing that, like, oh, I'm not the same here, or this isn't the way I am, and and honestly, I just give this to my wife. When I met her, um, it kind of really put a mirror to who I am. And even though I quit drinking, and I thought I was on this road, I, I mean, years ago, probably like I mean, 15 years ago, I started a road of road of what I would call like self improvement, which is like the movement now, but I just really wanted to do it like for myself um, without knowing it. And I'm a slow learner, so it just takes a long time. but yeah so i kind of think and then when i met her and you have and you know this like you know with erica when you have somebody that's that close to you and and all the guards are down and you know dating and all that stuff is very surface but there's a whole nother level when it's like you and me in this forever and life with everything that comes to it you can't hide yeah you know so she really pointed it out and helped me and then working with a lot of these veterans over the years and all these conversations that I've had they're like no you know it's okay that you 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 have your you have your version of this you have just because the Humvee didn't blow up doesn't mean and if I compile all the years and all the trips I've done overseas and all the rooms I've walked in and all the you know you know like I mean I could off the top of my head walking into a infirmary like a guy's arms missing and he's got gauze and blood and I gotta talk to him and make him fun, smile and or, you know, or yeah, God, I've just this one just always stands out. We I have a picture of it in my one man show. It's like the cover. I'm on this flatbed in this in this town. I think it was in Afghanistan. This tiny little makeshift military uh, base, and it's about a hundred guys. They and they had a plywood church and doing a show, and the picture's great. And and then we meet everybody. We have lunch with them. We shake hands. We exchange emails and all this other stuff. And I, you know, I always tell everyone, come to a show when I'm in the States, contact me, you're my guest. And then the next morning we learned that seven of those guys, I don't know how many, but I believe seven died that evening. Oh. And you know, I was like, oh my God, we just had like, 
is it the guy who got my number? It, like, and so that was there. And I'm not, I'm not feeling like I'm, but there's a lot of that right. over the span of years. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so that kind of like started chipping away and I just wasn't the same person and, uh, you know, changed, you know, now I'm super much better. Like, yeah, I just took time. It took the one man show. It took a great woman, solid friends, uh, working with amazing nonprofits where I've had the privilege of being a representative of, and also being a, a voice for others, um, to process all that and, you know, and then just right. changing my life of like, I've always been grateful. So work, working with gratitude and meditating and all these kind of things. So, but that always started, but the comic never leaves. Like yeah. I, I used to do this gratitude journal. I would do these gratitude journals. And then like once a week, I would send a message out to someone in my life that was important to me that maybe I haven't talked to in for years, let them know the part that they played and how important they were and how grateful I was for the part they played in my life. And I would do that over and over again. And it'd be nice. But they never tell you what to do with when someone doesn't respond. Oh. oh. Yeah, it just hangs out there. Just hangs. Just hangs there. Oh. I'm like, ah, oh, I did all this. And I, I said, thank you and how important you were. You didn't even give me a thumbs up <laughs> or a like. Didn't even address it. Now I just think you're now I just think you're a dick. <laughs> <laughs> now you want to take back the message and but you can't now. Yeah. It's like leaving a voicemail for an ex-girlfriend. Oh shit, man, why'd I do that? Oh man. And then you're oh, trying, she's you're she's gonna have that forever when I blow up. When I blow up, I'm huge and I get my Oscar. But here's the real BJ Walsh from right. 1992. He's no different. He's the same exact guy. He hasn't grown at all. <laughs> right. And then and then like like I said earlier, then that takes effect because people want to believe that out there. They see something and they want to believe that about you because of their own insecurities, because of their own hangups. So they're like, yeah, you are like that. And you're like, no, you don't know me. So that's why I think the, the best thing any human being can do is know who they are. Know who you are when you wake up in the morning. I get up every morning to make people laugh and bring a smile. And if I have a misstep, that's not my intention. That's all I can do. Continue to learn from there, so... I tell you, Mike, we haven't talked in a while. This is uh, I know glorious. I know this has been great. I don't think you've even asked a question. I've just vomited all over you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, the thing about it is, is I think there are people. There are people in your life, especially comedians in your life, that bring out your best, funny, and best self. Yeah. You know, like, and you're one of those people for me. You're yeah. you're one of those people for me. You've always have been. Like, if I'm with Mike Jenkins, it's. It's just on, and it's on, on on a personal level, and it's also on a comedic level, and that's my favorite place to be. Yes, and that was like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, it wasn't work when I was with you. I knew we were going to have the best time, you know? Like, it yeah. was so much Yeah, and that fun. makes work better. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I remember one time, it was St. Patrick's Day. You were featuring. You decided to bring your guitar. It's in Omaha. It's a funny bone <laughs> in Omaha. Right. And, and for some reason, you decided to become a musical comedian. And I'm like, oh, jeez, Mike. Yeah, you can <laughs> You got, you got your guitar. I'm like, okay. So I remember uh, I had a friend in the front row, like two brothers in the front row. Yeah. Right. And so it was a second show and I had, I went down to the store, like it was in like the strip mall and I bought a whole bunch of underwear for Victoria's Secret and a bunch of boxers and ties and all this kind of fun. And I give yeah. the guys in the front row a bunch of underwear and I give all the staff like ties and underwear and this stuff. And I said, the minute Mike breaks out the guitar and says, throw all this at him. <laughs> yes. Do you remember this? Yeah. So you break out and go, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just going to uh, got a little uh, tune here for you. You know, you pull the mic stool up. Yes. You sit down, you, you plug it in, do a couple strums. <laughs> and my buddy in the front row stands up and just, bel he's right in front of you, belts you right in the face with some boxers. Bam. And you're like, what? And then the staff just start throwing all this stuff at you. Boom, boom, boom. Like, I'm, dude, I spent a lot of money, like at least 30 pairs of underwear and all this are flying at you. Ding, 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 ding. Everything dies down, right? And you're just sitting there and your, your head done, because you know I did it to you. Your head just goes down. You start smiling and laughing, right? And <laughs> And then a few seconds later, out of nowhere, one lone tie comes. It was tied to a knot. Yes. Comes flying. It looked like a, a a green sperm in the air. Just starts flying right, and it hits you right in the head. Right? And you just look yes. up in the microphone. You go, "Really? A tie? <laughs> really?" Oh, dude! I just remember from my point of view. I pick up the guitar, and when I turn to the crowd, I just see these dots coming at me from every angle like everybody was rushing the stage it was so good 
<laughs> I wish we oh had that god. on tape. That was good. <laughs> oh my god, it was the best. It was so, and you were the best guy to kind of because you'd get me and we get each other. Like it was whenever we saw like a, a window that somebody would enjoy and you knew like an audience would enjoy it. It was it was on. You know exactly, so much fun. exactly. And there's a million things like that. And that I wish that I wish they were on tape just for our sakes, like not to put out or anything, but just so we oh, yeah. can see them, you know? Yeah. You know what we got to do? I don't think we could do it now, but we got to do an episode just of the road stories. Let's do an episode, yeah. Yeah, we got to yeah, do, do it again. Not a problem. Yeah. Talk about Nebraska. And I'm going to see if I could put off your intro song. <laughs> and I'm the only one who knows what it was. Yes, there's been one other person that's caught it that I had on, but other yeah. than that, I don't think anybody. I used it in my one-man show. That's yeah, right. that's a good call, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's the best. I love it. It's it's like yeah. the best no, dude. Show. I will talk to you at any point, man. I think it, it, it's 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 cool and probably extinguish whatever spark my career <laughs> I had. It'll be sure to crush it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dude. Oh. It'll be the it'll be the thing that people point at. Oh, that thing Rames thing. I get a call <laughs> from thing Rames. I'm gonna put that as your cover for the episode. Is <laughs> you and being Richard Gear? Richard Gear will <laughs> and hunt a me gerbil. down. <laughs> Richard Gear will, will physically beat me up, even though he's a Buddhist and he's done nothing but but peace. He'll right. he'll, he'll beat me with a gerbil. Right. No, dude, I love you, man. I I I and like I said, there's uh, there's people that are in your life that just put you right in your lane, man. Yeah, and. Uh, and that's what worries me because this is a lane usually people get in trouble. <laughs> I know, I know. That's the problem. Yeah, is we're too comfortable, and that's when you get I don't in trouble. Care. <laughs> no, I yeah, but but what what's trouble, dude? Like what what right. what? Are they it's one of those things. that's like I don't know. Like I, what I'm was is there principles? I don't know. Yeah, like, I have friends who are so nervous about all that stuff, and maybe they have something to lose. But when you're nobody like us, we're fine. Gives a shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We have nothing to take yeah. away. So yeah. Oh my God, they're taking away that gig I have at the strip mall. <laughs> like, dude, when we, we when we came out of COVID, everyone's like, "Oh, the rooms, the rooms only half filled." I'm like, "Great, I've been playing. I'm a pro at half filled rooms. I've been playing half court filled rooms for the past ten years. Exactly. My career's gonna soar. Yeah, you're getting double the crowd. Yeah. All right, PJ. Uh, I love you, man. I love you, man. This is uh, truly the the highlight of my comedy career was uh, going out with you on the road. Oh, man. Well, you're definitely, and we'll do another one and get to our stories. But when I look at it, it's like, there's nothing like our time together. There's nothing like, there's nothing like that adventure, you know, El oh, Paso yeah. and, and I mean, we, Wisconsin and Salt Lake and Ogden and Provo and I Omaha. Yeah. We'll have to just, we'll, we'll deep, we'll, we'll deep, we'll go deep into it, man. Yeah. And, um, and, and on top of that, personally, just one of the greatest people and one of the most important, influential people off stage in my life, dude. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And you, you, me, uh, I appreciate it. Uh, PJ, thank you. Yeah. And also, what I just told oh. you, you can use that and you should, you could put it in your review section and give me a different name. <laughs> <laughs> I can't put anything in the reviews. I can't delete anything. I can't put anything in it. I don't even look at it. I'm too. Oh, you can't to delete look. anything. No, oh, you never should have told me that. <laughs> All right. No, no. All right. You're buddy. awesome. I love you, man. Love you I'll too, talk bud. To you. All right. See you, Bill. Bye. <laughs>